You're checking out the Nifty Q Show. All right, good morning, good evening, good night. It is another edition of the Nifty Q Show. I'm your host, Nifty Q. I'm sitting here with an absolute legend. I'm happy to welcome uh, Yatsu, co-founder and chairman of Animoca Brands, uh, here with me for, I think, the fourth time, Yat. Uh, so I appreciate you taking my request each time, uh, and I'm getting ready for a great conversation here with you. Uh, how are you doing today? Great. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing really well, and uh, absolutely pleasure being here again. I remember, we had, you know, I was on your show, maybe two or maybe even three years ago, you know, it's a blur at this point because like every month feels like a year, mm. but, um, but yeah, so always happy to be in the show. Really grateful that you guys have been long supporters and, and sort of pushing the good message. Likewise to you as well. And if you say, I mean, three years, you can't even say that in this space. That feels like 10. Uh, I don't even know. It definitely feels a lot slower uh, back in 2018 as well. Now everything is moving at warp speed. So we're going to have a great discussion today. Honestly, I think, and I have it on the thumbnail there, if you did click in already, this is going to be the best podcast that you will hear all calendar year, 2022. Uh, we're just going to have a great discussion on spotting trends uh, which you were fantastic at doing throughout your career, Yacht. So I'm going to actually hop into the discussion, but I did want to give a quick shout out to Society of the Hourglass here. They are our sponsor on today's episode. Uh, so Society of the Hourglass is launching 8,888 NFT characters. They're going to have digit physical goods. They're going to have pre-sale access to a bunch of their NFTs here in the future as well under their brand Hashku. Uh, they're bringing entertainment and Web3 to Hollywood. That mint is going to be on November 4th. Uh, so big shout out to Society of the Hourglass for being our sponsors on today's episode. And without further ado, Yacht, let's let's hop in, man. I know you're in the U.S. Uh, here this this week, this month. Uh, hopefully we're treating you all right here for a little while. No, it's great. Yeah, having a great time. OK, awesome. All right. So we'll hop in. And this is the first thing I want to start with. Uh, there are many, you know, topics we can start uh, the actual conversation with, but you've, again, been so great at spotting trends throughout your career. I won't make you give the whole, like, you know, backstory of, of your personal uh, kind of endeavors, but I just want to kind of touch on what trends you're seeing as we hop into 2022. I know that's kind of starting really quickly, but we are, you know, getting ready for a new year. What trends are you seeing yeah, totally. right away? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest trends that we're now seeing is this movement towards, you know, we're at the early adopter phase. And one of the predictions that we have basically put forward internally is that we think we're going to hit, you know, hundreds of millions of users in, in blockchain gaming alone uh, this year. Uh, and there may actually maybe be a conservative estimate because, you know, when people do predictions, <laughs> they always try to be sort of frame it within the, I think that's really possible as opposed to, well, actually we'd like it to be a billion, but, you know, we think it's going to be a breakout year for a couple of reasons. Uh, and, and that will then drive a lot of other activity. Uh, one of the main reasons behind this is because so many of the large game studios are now looking at blockchain games. I think we talk a little bit later about sort of, you know, the gamer pushback that's been happening. But, you know, you know, for every, you know, 100 gamers that are like, I don't want this, there's one or two who are like, well, you know, actually, that sounds kind of interesting, right? And, and so that's one thing. So when you talk about a population of 3.2 billion people, you don't need every gamer to convert over to make an impact. <laughs> you only need another 5 or 10%. And suddenly, boom, 300 to 400 million people are basically in there. So that's, that's the first part. The second thing, which I think is maybe even more impactful, is when you take a look at the large game companies that are now saying let's do blockchain gaming, you know, whether it's like, you know, 
Ubisoft, a Square Enix, or even Gameville has gone out and said, we'd like to be like Animoca, in fact, right? Or, you know, a bunch of other large institutions, EA even saying, you know, blockchain gaming kind of looks like it could be the future, right? Um, the signaling doesn't actually come from the studio alone. It's from the people within the company. And so if they can't fulfill the goal of turning the business they're working with or working um, uh, with for essentially, you know, that new future, they're going to leave. And they're either going to join an entity that's doing that or they're going to do their own startups, which is exactly what we started to see in the last couple of months. And this is an accelerating trend, not just a sort of, you know, um, not just something that's just happening on the side. And so on the professional level, you've got people basically saying, oh, this is really interesting. We should do that. And there's many reasons why we can discuss that's so exciting for people at the industry level why they want to do that. Uh, and so you're going to see this this shift, which means that not only do you have a maybe a portion of gamers moving over, you actually have a larger part of the talent that's actually moving over. And by the way, this talent moving over to anything Web3 isn't actually just in gaming. Gaming is perhaps, a, you know, at least from our perspective, a concentrated lens because that's the industry we mostly play in, but it's happening in finance, right? It's happening, you know, you know companies like Google or Apple or, you know, all those big, large tech companies, their biggest threat is losing people to crypto companies, mm -hmm. <laughs> not, not, not towards other competitors, right? So, so, so I think 2022 is going to be an extremely exciting year because you've now got sort of mass talent that's moving in. And I think I may have described this at, at your show earlier that, you know, we see, you know, Web3 in the metaverse kind of like a country. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's like mass immigration. And this mass immigration is going from Web2 to Web3. You know, you know, Web3 is like that land of opportunity and hope and, and, and the ability to do something impactful in a way that maybe they wanted to do in the old world of Web2, but they couldn't. Uh, and so, you know, and who are the kind of people that get excited about building this space? Usually the smartest guys, right? Because they're not just doing it for office. There's money involved, clearly. But, uh, but you know, you see also a lot more principle-driven businesses in terms of, you know, I can I can make money and do good. Well, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> why, why would I why would I not want to do that? Right? It just feels better. It is better. So they're moving all over into that space. Yeah. So I, do, I think yeah. Go ahead. I do want to talk about uh, the kind of NFT features and the in the property rights that you mentioned on the first episode. The yes. first time we were talking about it, it really kind of captured my attention when you talked about NFTs being property rights for the metaverse. So I wanted I do want to have that discussion, uh, but <clears> I do want to talk about this, the trends that you're seeing yeah. uh, and how that, that that might be a parallel to what you were doing in 2010 yeah. with mobile. Is that, were there some parallels that you were seeing at that time to now? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, um, uh, what's this famous quote? Um, sort, of, uh, sort of, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm. I think this is true for, I think, you know, many things. And I think what we're seeing right now, again, while I think the parallel in terms of the growth is more similar in spirit, I should say, how it was with the internet, say, 25 to 30 years ago. You know, when I set up one of, actually, I set up one of the first ISPs in Hong Kong, and then later on, a very early cloud computing business in 1998. <laughs> so, you know, at that point, you know, we were like, you know, single low-digit percentage adoption rate of the internet. And there was an interesting parallel that I picked up on um, um, not, not too long ago, about actually the number of people that were using PayPal I think it was in maybe in the year 2000 or 2001, I don't remember anymore, um, was very similar to the number of users MetaMask had uh, maybe six or seven months ago. 
right? And if you look at some of those parallel growth numbers between that, uh, they're very similar in terms of trend, in terms of where the size of the community uh, is versus where the market is. Mm -hmm. But 30 years ago, one of the problems that internet had was infrastructure. In other words, in order for me to get connected to someone, I needed to have physical cable laid out. You know, oh yeah, if we, ha if we all had broadband, that's great. Except it takes me about a year to get that broadband because in my little county or my region, I don't have that. So I still got to use dial-up, right? Uh, and then in sort of global connections as well. I mean, you know, they had to literally have submarines that are basically laying out the cable and laying out that infrastructure, which meant that many of the business ideas that were actually formed in, you know, the dot-com boom, which we all joke about, like, hey, pets.com, online shopping, you know, virtual medicine, you know, um, you know, virtual chat, ah, you know, too early, you know, nobody's going to use that. I mean, we're all doing it today, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you could argue that the business concepts of 30 years ago weren't necessarily ridiculous. It's just that the idea was ahead of the ability for the infrastructure to support it. And so we see this trend happening, for instance, with smartphone and mobile as well, except there we were limited by the number of smartphones that could get into people's hands quickly enough. But it was faster because we already had Wi-Fi and we had the emergence of, you know, at the time, 3G and then eventually 4G, right? Now, enter this space with Web3. We have all the infrastructure already. Sure, we can talk about transaction speeds being slow and Ethereum and all that stuff. That is true, you know, that obviously the that infrastructure is slow, but actually getting access to it uh, really fast, right? We've got Wi-Fi, we've got, you know, 5G is just around the horizon. We all have, generally speaking, broadband. We're playing, you know, at, in high definition online games, right? So I would say that we'll see the same trends that we have seen, say, 30 years ago, but at hyperspeed, because we don't have the physical limitation to lock us in, which means also that I think we'll be seeing the kind of cyclical trends that happen normally over years, literally over months, if not weeks. Right? So if, for instance, there is a, you know, like if there's a, if, if there's a downturn that we should be expecting, this won't be a, like a one or two year winter this will be like a one or two month winter, for instance, mm -hmm. right? And then something new will swing up or new, you know, because the, the, the pace of acceleration isn't just, you know, accelerating in terms of, you know, sort of all the good things. It also accelerates the bad things, but then they also move in tandem just as quickly. So everything that, you know, so I would argue that in 2021, we've probably seen maybe three, if not four, possibly even five of these type of shifts that have happened in a very short period of time that normally we would have said, oh yeah, that was a cycle. The cycle being a few years actually compressed into a quarter. And then we moved on to another one and then we moved on to another one and they cycled out quickly. Um, now, why I think that this will continue to rise broadly speaking over a period of time is because we still only have a small percentage of the world onto Web3. Uh, you know, if you think about the number of people who have wallets, it's what, maybe 100 million, right? Uh, maybe less if you consider that how many people have more than one wallet, right? Yeah. Um, so so we're, you know, um, at best, I think, maybe 80 million, maybe actual unique users, perhaps, um, uh, in the space, in a place where there's, you know, uh, four and a half billion people online. So that's the one, uh, one thing. Why we are so excited about NFTs and gaming is because we still have billions of people who have a relationship with virtual goods uh, as one of ownership. So that's a natural one that we think we can transfer over. But the other area of trends that we like, you know, is, you know, the everything related to creative capital is what super, super excites us, right? Because 
when you think about the ability for uh, and and let me just sort of paraphrase this a little differently because you know we really believe in this uh, sort of uh, paradigm that every human has creative potential and we were just basically driven to a point where we had to force ourselves to become machines because of the industrial age that we grew up in right certainly our parents generation we had to do the job of machines but now that machines can do these jobs really well right we can actually go back or actually do the things that we as humans are uniquely able to do which is to be creative about it and then we talk about this thing about creative capital whether it's art whether it's music and also the way we engage with it or you know you know making games media and entertainment but the problem is, is that we weren't actually able to own equity in that process because the way that we own a property in our creative capital was a traditional legal construct that made it hard right but with essentially web3 we can actually be the creators of our own equity so i think that's really really powerful and so anything where there is inequity in the creative process uh we think there is a massive opportunity because it's undeserved so music is an example um which you know we started looking into as well which you know is complicated because of the legal structure but is an example where people have incredible creative capital but essentially is undeserved right but there's more than that right it's not just in the field uh in the field of music it's uh, or art which is one one expression any place where the time or the labor that you spend is uh distributed unequally we think essentially blockchain um and digital property rights is going to just bust open and um i'd love to tell you specifically one big area that we're focused on but we have an announcement coming soon on this one so i feel like um i, I shouldn't talk about no it just yet no hints yeah. Yeah, yeah, no hints, but there's, okay. you know, where there's a, there's a trend that we're focusing on, which will, I was hoping to talk about it before the end of the year, but, you know, these things sometimes take a little longer. I, it's, I it's, it's part of a transaction that we're completing. I completely understand. And, you know, when you were first uh, kind of booked into this episode, I was just telling everyone that Yacht's going to come on the show. We need to be listening to what Yacht's saying because he has this record of spotting these trends. So I'm glad that we're kind of not in gaming yet, although Animoca Brands has obviously staked its reputation on finding you know, great gaming uh, potential uh, projects there. And you guys have a fantastic portfolio. So you, you mentioned music and art. Are those kind of the two ones that you're looking at? You know, when people talk about 2022, they say year of the NFT. The year of the NFT was 2021 for sure. But is it going to be yeah. the year of gaming? Is it going to be the year of, of, of music so or I think Yeah. So I think for the 2022, I think will be the year of gaming. Um, and, and I think it will be the year of gaming because of, you know, some of the sort of uh, first trends I've discussed, which is, you know, <clears throat> obviously the, the number of users that are now like, actually, this is kind of interesting. I don't know nothing about blockchain. I mean, I give you uh, sort of just our own real life examples, for instance, what happened as we look at our model. You, you see, for instance, how we launched Phantom Galaxies, very different from maybe a traditional blockchain release. You know, we didn't sell any NFTs. We didn't do a token issuance, right? We basically actually airdropped a set of you know, access tokens, you could say, as part of a bigger scheme to everyone who just signed up. All you had to do was sign up. That's it, right? And I think this, um, you know, created um, a situation it's very similar to what we did with Ref Racing as an early example, where, you know, the majority of the users, actually, this was their very first NFT. And I think this is important, right? If you want to bring in people who are not from the space, you can't ask them to spend even $100 because, you know, from their mental model, $100 is like four or five games, right? What, what can I do with that? And they don't view it as an investment, at least in the beginning. So you have to bring them in in a different way by engaging community that way. And I think this model that we, I would say, 
have started to pioneer in the gaming side is I think going to be a model that's going to be used more and more as they see the effectiveness. I mean, we started off with Phantom Galaxies with over half a million um, NFT holders. I mean, that in itself is powerful. And if you look at the trends of trading, yes, the volume in terms of the quantum, sorry, in terms of the value of trading is obviously not as high as our sandbox or something like Bored Apes, right? Which are all amazing projects. But the number of trades are, you know, sometimes over a thousand a day, right? Which, you know, is, is in terms of quantum of a, a community engagement, uh, one of the powerful metrics uh, to look at. And that's how we think we'll bring in basically people who are not from the uh, crypto world, shall we say, who are not crypto natives. And, you know, what we've now seen is that, oh, it's not a problem to set up a MetaMask. That's not so hard after all, right? <laughs> you know, um, it's not so hard to sort of, you know, figure it out and, 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 and claim something. Because, you know, I say this to everyone as well, gamers are very used to being taught how to do something for the first time. I mean, it's easier, I would say, to open a bank account anywhere in the world than it is to, you know, complete a tutorial successfully in probably most games out there, even the biggest games out there. Yeah. Um, and, and yet they still succeed. So I think 2022 will be the year of gaming. Uh, and I think it'll be very similar to the way that smartphone basically grew because of gaming. Right, the smartphone wasn't conceived. Uh, in fact, Steve Jobs famously didn't like the idea that his device that he created was used, you know, in gaming in such a way. In fact, he, he even tried to sort of, you know, remove or, or ban sort of the use of Unity. Um, but of course, there was enough pushback, so 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 that didn't happen, thankfully. Uh, and that's because the gaming uh, possibility of that device is actually what pushed forward the smartphone in its use. And even today, the top-grossing apps are generally mostly games, for instance, right? Um, and so that trend will continue. One of the powerful things about gaming generally is that it pushes most technologies forward just because it is the principal utility. It doesn't rely on an external utility to do that and creates brand new industries around it. Like it's, you, you play it for the game itself, mm -hmm. right? You're not looking for an external validation. Like in the past, for instance, in the crypto world, people were trying to find ways in which they could blend the physical world. For instance, like, I know, like, like, People were experimenting with security tokens about securitizing physical assets or so on, right? But it required an external oracle and an external owner and an external setup. All of that stuff is complicated. And, you know, that binding between sort of the physical and the virtual world is actually where a lot of the hiccups started because do I trust you? Is this oracle actually real? Uh, what's the legality involved? But when you sort of give birth to something entirely digital within the digital rules in and of itself, Actually, you have a lot of freedom to do stuff, which is what we're seeing with all the NFT projects. And gaming is exactly that. It's born essentially entirely digitally, and it pushes industries from it. Take a look at all the hardware businesses that came from gaming. I mean, NVIDIA <clears throat> or, or what is now AMD, none of those companies would have been as big as they are today if it wasn't for gaming. Right. You know, we all sort of, you know, um, worship NVIDIA for the right reasons in terms of, you know, great graphic cards wonderful vision, all that stuff, right? But it's the gamers who made NVIDIA yeah. or who made Corsair or who made Razer or whatever it is. So gaming the year is going to be in 2022. NFT gaming is going to be obviously one of the bigger things, if not the year of NFT games. So, uh... so I just wanted to add that um, I'm not saying, so 2022 will be the year of gaming because gaming is going to drive sort of, that's where all this blockchain adoption that we were all sort of hoping for I think gamers will drive that. But what's also going to happen is essentially a 
sort of a, a, a mass emergence of all other projects in the um, in the blockchain and NFT space because you have an introduction <clears throat> of um, you know hundreds of millions of users mm-hmm. into Web3 that are not going to be there just for gaming. They may start with gaming, but they won't end there with gaming. Gotcha. Right? So it's going to provide essentially uh, you know this this sort of uh, I guess this 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 fertile sort of uh, sort of a fertile sort of uh, sort of uh, bed as it were for many new new things to grow and build on top of right and so you should expect music and art and all the other things including the one that we're not announcing yet but will be very soon right yeah. um, to basically grow from that because you're going to have hundreds of millions of people basically on 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 web three. Awesome. I want to pause here and give you an opportunity to break down Animoca Brands for someone who doesn't know what you guys do, kind of the thesis. And I also, I do want to give a shout out. There are a ton of questions, Yacht, uh, in the chat for yourself. Mo- some of them have to do around this BAYC uh, Animoca partnership sure. and like the future of, of these uh, potential features that you guys are launching with Board API Club, which we'll get to in a second. But please do break down Animoca Brands for someone who's not familiar with your thesis and sure. what you guys are doing. Of course. So Animoca Brands' primary thesis is uh, delivering digital property rights. And so the way that we think of it is that, you know, NFTs represent essentially these digital property rights. And we believe very strongly that there can be no society or no nation that can truly build a stable foundation, the one for growth anyway, unless you have ownership of property. And this is certainly true in the physical world. So when you just think about, you know, your ownership of the physical world, your actual assets themselves become platforms in and of itself. The fact that you own a car allowed, and the fact that billions of other people have ownership of cars, allowed for the creation of Uber or Grab or you know, car wash stations, a rental, you know, um, you know, car dealerships, right? These are all businesses that were established just because we had the right to own our car and that right was stable. Now imagine if that right was not stable. Imagine if the government could take it away at any time. Imagine if, you know, every six months, whatever you bought was gone, right? Um, and we know what the countries that run this way look like. They tend to be failed nation states, right? Failed states, uh, or they start to look like North Korea, very, right? which are not the kind of places that we, we want to live in, right? So the foundation of owning property is the foundation in which all things can be built on top. So if we think that's true, then um, in the digital space, we should have the same thing. Meaning that right now, who actually owns everything that's digital? Well, it's owned in a database. Who actually owns a database? Oh, wait a second, it's Facebook. <laughs> it's the game companies and it's Amazon. They actually own the data. And what can they do? Well, if they don't like you, actually they can just push a button and remove it. It's basically the sum equivalent of an eviction of a deed of property that you thought you had. And because of whatever reason, you know, you know, the person in power says, oh, actually, I think this property ought to be somewhere else, or maybe I should take it back. I think one of the most interesting parallels of this was there was a there was a user who owned on Instagram the handle Metaverse, I think for the last 10 years. And she was just doing her thing. And then suddenly she lost the handle on Instagram uh, because uh, it said impersonating someone else, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Because, of course, she didn't actually own the handle. She technically rented it. But the outcry was so great that Facebook quickly reinstated her. Says, "Whoops, I'm sorry." But can you imagine something like this happening in the physical world? That someone just sort of took your home and said, "Sorry, um, actually, we want to build a museum here." But thank you, mm-hmm. right? And if this person had no voice, it would have just happened. 
So you have to basically just, you know, of course you can't do that legally in the physical world. And we need the same protection in the virtual one in order to make Web3 truly happen. And that's sort of what we describe as the metaverse. And so that comes our thesis. Our thesis basically is in order to make that happen, what's the fastest and best way to basically create a metaverse where we truly have our true digital property rights? Because we think of that as the absolute foundation. So that means, you know, first we need to work with the groups that we think have many users that already believe they have a virtual ownership, but they don't actually do. And that's why we focus on gamers to begin with. Plus we have a gaming background, so that kind of seemed natural. And, you know, for those who are not too familiar with our story, we started off with CryptoKitties, um, the partnership and the investment. Uh, we got involved actually as, 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 as early as late 2017, pretty much when it all kicked off and became the publishers in 2018. And then we invested in OpenSea and, you know, obviously, you know, um, uh, we acquired Sandbox and we did uh, just sold 2018, 2019 stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, sort of Dapper Labs, Wax, Decentraland, right? And, and um, but now we're also investing and have done so with a lot of uh, protocols. So, you know, layer one, layer two, it's because it's the same thing. In order for us to build in them, we need to make sure that we have sort of sufficient um, sort of, uh, a sort of uh, stake in the ecosystem to make it work. Um, and so we have to invest in layer ones and then we're also investing in lending platforms and, you know, DeFi and so on, because they all power the utility and the use case for NFTs, which represent digital property rights. And just to close on this one, if we are correct about all this, then there's going to be the kind of creative, a sort of broad creative renaissance that is happening globally uh, in a way that really um, has only happened a few times in history, if ever because of the fact that we can now build on top of each other's creations, uh, much like we've seen with open source with Web1, right? Open source was sort of that example where I could start with a small bit of code and someone else added something else on this code. The code can fork 10,000 times, right? But the origin of that original code may have aided in the creation of the next Google, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, you know, blockchain, you know, if it wasn't for open source, would not have been able to grow the way that it has. So we owe the creation of the whole sort of Web3 movement to open source, which in and of itself is perhaps one of the most sort of greatest example of what open composability means on top of code. Love it, man. The composability that you see in Web3 and the interoperability, now that we're able to kind of connect different protocols, yeah. it's, a, it's been an amazing experience just to watch. I remember when we spoke about interoperability, just, um, you know, I, th I think in fact at your show a few mm -hmm. years ago, it was, um, we had a great conversation, but you know, the questions were like, well, why would I ever use one virtual good in another one? It just doesn't seem to like, I, I don't, I, why would I do that? And I was like, wow, we should totally do that. Right? So it's, it's great. <laughs> so I've got a lot of people in the chat that are still blowing it up. Please guys continue with the questions. I will get to most if I can. I don't, you tell me when you have your hard stop yacht, but I do want to kind of focus in on this 2017 time, this crypto kitties time. There are a ton of people listening right now that, that just got into NFTs, maybe in 2021, 2020. What's the biggest mm. difference from that time in 2017 with NFTs and maybe even 20, 18, although that was a that was a bear market so there wasn't as much to do uh but at what's the been the biggest difference from that time frame and then another question i want to pose on top of that is from that time period i know you've had a lot of wins but is there anything you would go back to yacht in 2017 and say hey maybe don't do this <laughs> sure but well, there's also so many lessons but quickly where things are different clearly 2017 or more 2018 um, was the realm of the exclusive, right? So it's almost, you know, I remember, you know, the, one of the very first, if not possibly the first NFT conference, I'm not really sure, 
it was in 2018, I think it was April or March, I don't really remember. It was in fact in Hong Kong, it was a nifty show. You know, it was co-hosted by, uh, by Decentraland um, uh, and Kinetic at the time. And it was at the Sireport, which is literally next to our office. And we had been quite active and uh, relatively active to the space. And uh, we were like 250 people, right? <laughs> that was it. And it was really hard to bring people over as well. It's like, hey, we're going to talk about NFTs. Have you heard of this? They're like, uh, do I really want to go? But sure, let's let's go take take a look into it. So, so I would say maybe half of the audience of those 250 were probably believers. The other half were just people we desperately pulled in to basically <laughs> sort of, you know, basically say, hey, you got to you have to listen to this, right? But as a result, I think it was very sort of uh, uh, emblematic as to what the size and also what the community was like. We were like this echo chamber of believers that spoke to each other and basically sort of built on each other's hype, as it were. It's like, hey, this is great. Yes, I think it's great too. Everyone else is like, this is rubbish. But anyway, we didn't care, right? So we're literally just building inside that bubble. Um, so that's one. But on the other hand, also, I think we created um, inadvertently a kind of elitist exclusive type club as well, where people were basically sort of, you know, talking about the norms and the mannerisms, you know, that happen in the NFT community of a very specific group that for the rest of the world was like, you know, um, alien. It's a little bit like, you know, for if you've never been to China and if you don't know anything about Chinese culture, you go in and then basically you get handed a bunch of chopsticks and like, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And then if I don't actually use it correctly, it's rude. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And everyone else in the restaurant is like offended. Oh, my goodness. You just don't have any manners. Right. Or like table manners. Right. Like if you don't know how to use your fork and knife because you just came in from a different culture, then, you know, you look down on that and you say, well, guys, you just don't have any manners. But, you know, actually, really, <laughs> he's never been here before. He doesn't know anything about this. Right. And so I think we went through a period of time where the NFT community, I'm not saying all of them, but, you know, was a little bit like, oh, this is how we do it. This is how it has to be done. And, you know, we ourselves, you know, were subjected to to that a little bit. You know, when our when we had when we sold our F1, our first F1 car, the 111, this was in 2019. Actually, it was the most expensive NFT of 2019, right, which was. 111,000 US, which of course at the time seemed like a grandiose amount. And the buyer was none other than Medicoven, as it turns out. Someone who clearly spent a lot more than <laughs> in the future on, on, on virtual virtual goods. But he, he didn't say anything for a while. And there was also this whole thing of, you know, uh, not being sort of uh, inviting, to, not everyone, but a bunch of people were like, oh, but this is how we do it. This is how we bring people in. This is what you ought to do, right? And if you don't fit in the way that, you know, we have set up the norms and culture of the NFT community, then you're not welcome here and everything's suspicious, right? And I think this is, this is obviously that's completely changed now. And I think in 2021, you know, we've seen a case where NFT culture is completely different from what it was even just a year before, because as you said earlier, so many new people have come in and like with any place, you know, and I think this is, you know, America is a great example. You may start off with, you know, an original culture, which frankly was very, very different from the immigrant culture that came hundreds of years, you know, um, sort of uh, ago where people started moving in from Europe and then eventually from Asia. And, you know, what is the American culture really, right? American culture is a hodgepodge of, you know, diversity, ethnicity, cultures and everything, you know, there's Chinese restaurants everywhere. There's Japanese restaurants everywhere. There's Mexican food everywhere, right? Right, we're all mixed up, and now they're all part of the lo- local culture, right? And so that's that's what's happening right now as well. And I think it will continue to emerge as new people come in, you know, and they're larger too. Yeah. So their culture will come in, 
and they will change the, the landscape, which, by the way, not everyone, you know, will appreciate because it was like it was like the sort of the, the nice, quiet place that yeah. that sort of they knew the rules on. And now suddenly, you know, it's become noisy. It's become big. It's become I, I think it's better, but I can totally appreciate why some people would struggle with that. I'm getting PTSD from like Bitcoin maxis and even Ethereum maxis. It's funny how you make yourself down the rung and each previous generation of adoption they kind of shake their finger at the next group uh but that's that is one thing i would agree with you that the nft space has been super open to creators at least this new class in like 2020 and 21 it seems like everyone's kind of has this free environment to experiment with whatever you want so yeah and i think one of the biggest benefits of nfts inadvertently was that you know in 2018 uh when we were sort of trying to push NFTs to the market, which, you know, as you know, was, was a winter. Everyone was already running away from fungible tokens because 2018 was just a broad crypto winter. And here we are talking about a non-fungible version of what was, <laughs> what was fungible before. Everyone was, wait, why would I even do that? So you had such a large number of the original crypto community that were there really for different reasons, not able to, actually they didn't participate in this, um, and therefore, their particular culture wasn't there. And it's such a small group that, you know, we're really talking at one point, hundreds of people that were involved in the space that everyone was just like so desperate for, oh, you know, like you're interested in NFTs? Great, let's have a chat. Like, I'd love to talk to you and tell you all about it, right? It was it was that point. But I think we're getting now to a point where obviously, you know, you, you, you get NFT experts that have been in the space for maybe less than a year, right? and who are now setting the norms and standards, they all do an important part, but they're all creating essentially a, a new thing. And I think I think one parallel that comes to mind is like generations. You know, in traditional generations, you know, our parents would be looking at what we're doing today or, you know, and just say, this is really weird. Why would mm -hmm. you do that, right? I mean, and new cultures emerge that they would have no appreciation for. Right now, what's happening in, in Web3 and, and just generally the crypto world, a new culture seems to form every three to six months. Mm -hmm. Meaning that I think the generational impact and generational change we used to see over decades is now happening over months. And so trends that we thought that we could predict over long periods of time are all worthless because we have to trend ourselves over the next three to six months as opposed to over the next three to six years. So it is not a meme to say this space is moving at light speed because it's space literally is, uh, it feels like it's accelerating, just, you yeah. know, evolving is probably the word uh, that would that would yeah. fit in that that space. So if you guys haven't checked out Animoca Brands portfolio, you need to. Uh, it's a who's who of especially gaming, but definitely metaverse plays. I think there was an announcement that your portfolio is worth almost 16 billion uh and you correct me if i'm wrong uh, about that but i do want to touch on that yeah. le lesson uh the lessons you might go back and and you know kind of tell your early self or your 2017 self and say hey let's avoid this pitfall has there been any or has it been all w's no 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 of course i mean there's for for for, for every you know apparent uh, apparent victory there's been like you know a, a dozen <laughs> a dozen issues um, I would say, you know, one of the one of the early lessons, uh, and there's actually so many, but you know, one of the big things, especially as you're trying to build something and you have high conviction in the space, is to surround yourself ideally with all the kind of people that will help you put there. It's very difficult to, first of all, it's, you know, it's very easy to say no, right? And it's very easy to to be negative about anything, right? So if something is new, so I think one of the I I, I wouldn't call it a regret. But I think we could have moved even faster if we um, 
if we as an organization were set up with the kind of people on day one that were sort of believing in the mission. And so if you look at our history from 2017, actually we were in the course of restructuring our organization. It had some benefits because we were a public listed company at the time, but it had also some restrictions because we had to deal with, you know, um, sort of independent board members who maybe didn't understand the space. We also had to deal with, you know, regulation early on. I would say that they all provide lessons going forward, right? Meaning that we know how to do things better maybe than others, just because we went through that experience. So I would say no matter how difficult the roadmap is, those failures that we've had are all valuable lessons because if we only had wins, actually something would be wrong, right? <laughs> like, like this, 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 there's something really strange if all we can talk about is our successes. Obviously successes is what you might see as an end result, but everything that happens comes from the lessons emerged. So I would say that the failures are actually the lessons that help us get there. But you know, one of them is surrounding yourself with the kind of people who can push you along. What's hard really is, and you'll find this, especially now when the business is growing, uh, you, you need to get people who will push along with you as opposed to the ones that you have to drag along with you, right? Mm. And, and that happens a lot um, because when you're talking about like 10 to 12 people organization, it's okay. Everyone knows each other. And they're frankly somewhat also infected by the spirit of the founders or the core group, right? But by the time you get to 50 people, you know, that starts to dilute a little bit. By the time you're 150 people, that, <laughs> that gets even harder. We're almost 600 people, for instance, right? And so how do you maintain that culture and the foundation for that? So the foundation of that is really, really important, um, I, think, I think, to do that so that it can be self-perpetuated, which is no easy thing to do. And, you know, we're still trying to figure it out ourselves. But in the early days, bring yourself together, I think, with, you know, believers. You know, the criticism to this is, oh, but you're basically just getting people together who just drink the same Kool-Aid. And, and, and that's not good, right? You need to have people who can, who can sort of tell you all the downsides and so on. I think this could be consultants, but I think, you know, because but I don't think you need people uh, within the group in the beginning, um, you know, to your core mission, because again, it's always, it's, you know, um, I think it's easier to say no than to say yes, right? Which is also something a little different, right? A lot of people would say, oh, you know, like I woke up one of our biggest challenges for fundraising in the early days, which, you know, seems sort of a little bit funny to say now, mm -hmm. but back then it was really hard. You know, basically every VC passed on us. One of the main reasons they passed on us um, was that we seemed um, too unfocused. Like, oh, you're doing everything. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing, you know, and, and for us, it was alliance building. And, you know, we explained it, that we wanted to bring people in to, to hop on the space. And anyway, if we believe in the interoperability and if we believe in decentralization uh, and, and, and how there's going to be a shared network effect, then wouldn't it be a little bit weird if we were, actually trying to control it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead, we would make, you know, hundreds of investments and we would also build these metaverses that would decentralize, right? And I think, I think um, this, this um, you know, being very different in your approach requires you to then therefore build alliances with the same kind of people who believe in that to push you forward because, um, because otherwise, uh, you know, it, it's safer for someone to just say, no, we don't do that. Because if it's not been done before, yeah. then obviously it's easier to say no than to say yes because of the risk that's associated. So, so I think that's probably one of the big, big, big lessons here. Like for any one of you who's starting an NFT project or starting to think about something in blockchain, 
and it's much easier today, by the way, to find people who believe in this, obviously. Mm -hmm. But, you know, bring people who are close to your culture. And I think, you know, no matter what the struggle will be in the near term or midterm, you'll navigate through it. Yeah, but especially when that challenge is super, uh, you know, challenging, you're, you want that tight-knit clan. So I definitely uh, think that was a great answer there, Yacht. I've got a lot of questions that I need to get to uh, here specifically. One of them has to do with meta. So you mentioned, obviously, that, yes. that kind of echo chamber that the NFT space was back in 2018, 19, even a little bit of 2020. We broke out of that really hard in 2021, of yes. course. Saw more adoption. Yes. We saw more exposure than ever before. Uh, and one of the things that came along with that was Meta uh, and this mm -hmm. this new you know centralized metaverse, if you will, uh, that's being planned by Facebook. What do you make of that in general? Do you do you like uh, kind of the way that Zuckerberg has gone about it up to this point? Or? So, so I guess the short answer is first of all, thank you, Mark Zuckerberg, because <laughs> it wasn't for him. Probably the whole idea of the metaverse is not a new concept, right? Just to be clear. But he put it on really he put it on everyone's lips so i think you know if nothing else you know he's basically made it famous as a, as a term now everyone's talking about the metaverse it drove other organizations and groups to talk about i mean i even received i think was it dropbox for that it's sort of a message oh dropbox is entering the metaverse it's like what <laughs> it's like how where what and i'm sure there's a way but i'm just it's like everyone is sort of you know banding around the buzzword a little bit which i think it's all part of that, right? I mean, it's 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 you need to create that awareness where, you know, and you create that dialogue and discourse where people start having this discussion around. And so I think on that marketing side, it was great. But I think the assumption on why he called renamed the, uh, the company Meta is a little bit more insidious, right? Because I think it really means that when people are sitting down and having, you know, first time coffee conversations around the metaverse, the natural thing that they will say, oh, it's the thing that Facebook is, right? That's the metaverse, right? I mean, by rebranding yourself to Meta, you're really actually trying to monopolize the conversation of Metaverse. In there. And I, from a branding and PR and, frankly, propaganda standpoint, I totally Jeez. understand what they're doing. It's great. On the other hand, I think it's dangerous, right? Because if people think the Metaverse is something like a Facebook and they don't understand that it must have true digital property rights, that, you, you know, that, that you know, VR and AR, from our perspective, are great entry points. Mm -hmm. They're great experiential ways to ex explore the metaverse, but they are not the metaverse, right? Um, you know, the metaverse can only be one that, you know, we believe is, has to be owned by its community, and therefore we must have true ownership of it in some form of, fa uh, some form of fashion. Now, I also think that um, Meta gets it. I don't think that, you know, if you look at the history of what Facebook tried to do, I mean, anyone remember Libra? Right, mm -hmm. right. They, 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 they. You know, when the whole sort of uh, cryptocurrency thing started to really explode and grow, oh, on came Libra, and a, a plan was created and a structure was made, and you could definitely tell that there was effort and research done in space. So I do not believe that they do not understand what's actually happening. I think they fully understand what's happening, but the reaction here is okay. This is actually a threat to the way that we have traditionally built our business because we own the network effect. And just one thing, just to elaborate here, is the ownership of that network effect is the true power of data. Right? That is actually what this means. And with non-fungible tokens, we now have a stake in that network effect, right? Whether we created it or we can buy it from someone else. If I buy Sandbox Land or if I buy a board Ape, what am I buying? I'm actually buying an ownership in that network effect, right? Mm -hmm. 
Now, in the case of a Facebook or any centralized game company that's out there, or Tencent or Amazon or whatever you want to call it, that network effect belongs exclusively to the uh, to the company um, in question. And then giving that up is akin to a internal revolution, right? It's like it's like you know you were a monarchy and now you want to be a democracy and you need to have parliament. Well, guess what happens, right? Mm -hmm. It's basically a kind of appending of the existing structures that they have. And so how do you navigate that? I think in a traditional way, maybe, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg really wanted to do something in that space, uh, he may have to leave Facebook and start a new company, right? That's kind of one way to do it. But to do it from within Facebook, I think it's going to be very, very hard because he's got shareholders, he's got existing value to protect, he's classic innovator's dilemma, which by the way, the game studios who absolutely see where the future is going are struggling with as well. Yeah, it seems to be a little bit of the problem that you have with Animoca Brands, right? Where you had a larger company that needed, that, that moved a little bit more slowly than you probably wanted to go uh, in that sense, so. I think so, but I think um, one of the things about Animoca itself, um, which, you know, benefited us inadvertently is, is that we are a public company. We have over 2,500 shareholders. No single shareholder has a super majority. So you could argue that Animoca, since its inception, has been the DAO-like in structure, mm -hmm. which I think in itself created a checks and an interesting checks and balance as well in terms of the way the business is operated, right? If if any one of us owned supermajority or had golden shares, then what we would be able to do is essentially just direct whatever. We don't have to build any consensus whatsoever. We just do, right? But I think the interesting uh, situation there is that you know philosophically and structurally. We were essentially bound by a way in which we had to basically be good actors, right? And I think this is one of the main benefits of sort of, you know, looking at scaling that type of thinking in the form of DAO, um, you know, outside of a public corporation, which has been a traditional way of doing it. Yeah, that's a fantastic discussion there on Meta uh, and kind of Zuck's idea of maybe needing to leave uh, Meta and leave Facebook altogether. It's kind of like what Jack is, is doing a little bit with Twitter. Maybe he's having that same kind of butting heads uh, with his big corporation now. So be interesting to see what he does as well uh, in the Web3 space. Uh, but I do want to well, touch you on- You know, he doesn't, he doesn't like Web3 though, if I, you follow what he's filming on Twitter. <laughs> I, I have seen those memes where he's like putting it out and is against it, but I could see him maybe changing his tune down the line. We'll see. But, yeah, uh, but that's a different conversation, but yes. For sure. Yeah. So so I want to stay on the metaverse. Obviously, you guys are big investors in the sandbox. Uh, you know, in 2017, 18, it was Decentraland. Uh, there's definitely been some evolution since then. I feel like every NFT game is essentially having some type of plan to have land. And I, I kind of want to have this discussion, like psychologically, why do humans need to even in the metaverse need their land because it seems like that's uh, something that sells out each time uh, when when you're talking about having metaverse property in your game. So I want to talk a little bit about Sandbox and then just kind of have a general discussion on your thoughts on yeah. where the metaverse might be, you know, in, in a year so, or two years. So, I mean, I may have described this before already on your show this way, but, you know, we think of a Sandbox as like the sort of, you know, virtual or digital Manhattan, right? It's the place to be if you want to enter the metaverse. In terms of having ownership, I mean, you know, when Adidas, <clears throat> an example, I mean, I, I think it was great the way Adidas entered the space. They did it essentially by having stakes and ownerships and building on multiple metaverses and platforms, you know, including Sandbox and Board Apes and so forth, right? And then essentially engaging that community. I think it's no different than, you know, if you want to be in the fashion world, you probably need to have a presence in Milan or in Paris or in London, right? 
if you want to be in tech, you probably want to set up something in Silicon Valley, right? You know, it's where do you engage the community that's going to be there? And so Sandbox has become one of those places, but it's not the only place. I mean, there's Decentraland, there's Somnium, CryptoVoxels, there's a lot of places that are coming up and, and more of them are developing every time. And I go back to this first point about the network effect. Uh, our physical spaces is very much like a network effect as well. When you're buying a house in Tribeca, right? What are you buying? I mean, the building itself is nice, but honestly, you have probably that same kind of building somewhere else in America or somewhere else in Europe, perhaps. And they'll probably be even bigger or nicer, but you don't want to live there. You want to live in New York because of the network effect. The network effect may be personal, like your friends and family, or maybe business where I work, or just the influential people that I want to be connected with around me. You know, when people talk about sort of, you know, buying a place in Beverly Hills, for instance, what, what are they buying? Oh, they're buying a connection, even just by association, to being part of something, right? So it's a social status as well that comes with it. And so now we move into the virtual plane, which actually, anyway, I would argue that all of our physical value, the majority is derived from its, uh, is derived from its uh, virtual um, sort of virtual sort of um, uh, value as opposed to a physical sort of fundamental value anyway. And so real estate and land functions the same way. Uh, and, and, and therefore virtual land really is just an extension of that. So why you want to buy something in Sandbox is because you want to be next to Snoop or you want to be associated with Adidas, or you want to be associated with The Walking Dead, right? These are all the same reasons you do so. So then comes the kind of argument of, okay, well, all this land is selling out. There is this thing where when people start a new project, they look at the fact that there is, you know, oh, I can build something there. It's kind of like the construction of a, of a new country or of a new city. And there's a hope that this could become, you know, maybe the next San Francisco or a new Beijing. It's not that different from the age of exploration where people went out and discovered new lands in hopes of building out. But as, as it happened back then, today as well, just in faster cycles, some will work and some will not, right? And I think this is the, the, you know, the argument that physical land is limited uh, you know, on, on planet Earth is not exactly true because you could go to Africa and you go to many places around the world and you have sufficient pieces of land, right? It's the same thing. You know, if you look at history as well, you know, actually Timbuktu was actually a center of, of trade, right? It was actually, you know, the beginning of civilization actually happened, you know, in, in very different places, right? In what is now, you know, in modern day Iran, you know, you know, many sort of, you know, many thousands of years ago, those were the epicenters of the world. You know, the Sumerians created deed of property ownerships of those places that had value, you know, places in, in China or in Europe, it was completely worthless, right? Mm -hmm. You couldn't ask anyone in ancient Persia to go and build something in the middle of France to be like, why would I do that? Or, or actually, you know, like, like, why would I ever be there? So, so it's the same. So the, the only thing is it happens, the cycles happen so much faster um, that you can see the progress on this. And so one of the measures is community. When you're thinking about building a nation, you have to think of its population and you have to think of it in terms of its economic, its economic potential and its economic size. Uh, so we think the way that if you're interested in understanding you know, which metaverse project would succeed, the way we measure it is on a GDP basis. In other words, volume of trade, activity of community, activity, uh, not so much profit, but much more related to how active is a community. So that's why, for instance, when you look at what we did with Phantom Galaxies or even Rev Racing uh, as an earlier experiment, is we want to see how many people are trading the NFTs, how active are they in community, 
what are the social signals more so than you know what's the value of the nft that's selling that will come we think in time but it's going to be very hard because we see this today that if you build a project and the value explodes really fast really quickly only a few hundred people or maybe a few thousand people can afford to own it it ends up becoming like a monaco right or luxembourg which is nice right mm. but it can't ever grow beyond that because the entry point is just too expensive in you know if you know we have this problem in hong kong in a way because hong kong is sort of you know it's i think most expensive real estate happens to be in hong kong right and there is some degree of unhappiness in this part of the world because you are locked right and the only way in which you can expand is outside of hong kong uh, and i can't really go anywhere else uh, if i want to sort of have a different lifestyle um or have a bigger space to live whereas in america right you know if san francisco is too expensive it's okay i can go to oakland right i can go somewhere else i'm, I'm not away from the community i'm in but i happen to be an hour or two away and that's okay and i can expand around that and you know um these type of sort of assumptions on equity often are based on peer relationships not on actual you can't say that for instance people in hong kong are not well off their average gdp per capita is one one of the highest in the world but relative to other people in hong kong it feels like they don't have much right uh-huh. so normally that's the case where people move but in this case they can't do that because of the physical limitations the metaverse doesn't have that restriction right which means i can move from place to place to place where i feel best where the community can be i don't need a visa i don't need a passport i don't need to seek permission but i can just go right and which i which i think means that the most successful metaverses are going to be the ones that are the ones that give the most back to the community in a sustainable way. So if I had to kind of make you choose one or the other, is it going to be a community owned, uh, like where you have an alluvium that has a land sale or you have these, uh, like an Axie Infinity that has a land sale, or is it going to be these larger metaverse companies like a sandbox that are going to do better in the long term? Is there is there a balance between both? I think you need, first, so what we believe is in diversity, which explains why we, you know, we now made over 150 investments in the space. Mm-hmm. And and so when you think of the metaverse, the way we think of it is essentially the construction of an entirely new sort of society around sort of a virtual level, then there won't just be one place. So you need the sandbox and you need Axie as, you know, um, places that ultimately now sandboxes become fairly expensive uh, in relative terms. So it's not going to be something that every person can participate from an ownership standpoint. They can work their way towards it, of course, um, but it won't be the only one. In fact, um, for Sandbox to succeed, it needs to have many other metaverses grow as well, because it's it's not the classic way of thinking of rivalry. They need to inform of each other so that they can derive value from each other. And also you have then communities that cross over as well as a result as the space grows bigger. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if the whole world was only one place and one community, and had only one and didn't have you know multi diversity, then actually we would you know it would be a very different place. We would suffer creatively. We would suffer in terms of diversity and and inclusion wouldn't be possible. Yeah. So I think I think um, all of them would grow. So that's obviously a bit of a cop out diplomatic answer to to this, but uh, but you know. Um, where the the thing is that if you look at something like sandbox for instance um they are i would say defining themselves very much as a leader in terms of the branded experiences so if you're looking at it from an investment standpoint i would say sandbox obviously is more visible it's kind of like the oh it's like a series d investment right it's yeah. like oh it's, it's relatively safe I, you know um it may be wobbly but you know it probably won't go to zero there's a lot of people there right versus if you look at a brand new sort of uh, 
project. Like it's like literally the settlers had just moved into a new country and they're basically putting in their stake and saying, okay, we're the first 50 settlers. This is going to be the next New York. Just watch us. <laughs> it's just like, okay, right? <laughs> you know, so let's see how that goes, right? I like that analogy. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's it's the same, I think. Okay. Uh, we're sitting at about almost an hour, uh, so let, do let me know if you have to like run at the top of the hour so like uh, I can have get you Have a bit more time. Okay, yes. you have yeah. a bit more time. So I ha do have some questions from early on in the episode. We've kind of made our way through a lot of the portfolio projects that you guys have been uh, investing in, but also I want to talk about Board API Club that you partnered sure. recently with. Uh, yeah. Take me through that timeline. Did you guys reach out to them? Was that inbound to you via, like, how did that happen? And then what actually is going on with this partnership? So, I mean, you know, we already had a relationship with Board Apes uh, because of, um, you know, through the Sandbox Group. I mean, you know, they're one of the biggest holders of, of Apes. Um, and, um, and and generally speaking, you know, there, there was a conversation that started whew, maybe half a year ago or so. I'm not sure anymore, right? Um, about hey, we'd like to do some interesting stuff, and we started talking about um, about about a game, and um, and that just evolved, and then just you know, and, and the, the great team to work with. They're they're really creative. Um, they love their community, and and I think one of the things you can see also with the way that Board Apes has approached it is the way that they are sort of brand building and commercial as well. I think is very strong, um, and and you can see it in not just the way the community is engaging, but in the partnerships they're broadly announcing, right? Uh, and so I think they're, they they then they brought some more people on to help them with that. Um, so uh, obviously I'm not at liberty to discuss the details, mm. but you know we are certainly you know very very happy to. Um, in fact, I would say maybe one thing I could say is that we had intended to actually maybe even show a demo of the game, perhaps even this year, but it wasn't it, it wasn't to be. Meaning that you may be able to see something sooner than you think. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really exciting, um, and um, that's really all I can say. Okay, I don't want to put you on the spot I, I, too much. <laughs> yeah. So so you know you mentioned the Adidas partnership here uh, earlier. So Board Ape did partner with Adidas on that launch, which I think was executed <clears throat> brilliantly. The other side of that, uh, with like larger brands getting into the space, is acquisition. So we actually mm. had Nike come in and do the same, not the same thing, and that that was the yes. big debate, which is they completely acquired Artifact, which is another large NFT project in the space. Yes. What do you make of that entry by a larger brand and the community maybe backlash so, there? Um, so one, I think Nike acquiring Artifact um, or any other brand that's acquiring a sort of, um, I guess, metaverse plays, as it were, I think is absolutely critical for them, as in for Nike. I think they need to find a, you know, when you do an acquisition, you're not just thinking about it in terms of revenue, right? You're thinking really, and for, for Nike, regardless of how successful Artifact was, which was very successful, it's nothing compared to the revenues that Nike makes. What they're buying is talent. What they're buying is the ability to enter that space and tactically work the organization in a way that they're ready for that market right you know and and so m a is very very typical one thing that i think nike did that was smart is they went in and tried to buy a company very early where arguably you could say that there might still be some risks because from our perspective the later the brands come in the harder it will be for, uh, even possible for them to acquire because of the way that tokenomics are structured, typically speaking, particularly the ones that are turning into DAOs, where essentially, you know, it's like if I wanted to take over the Ethereum community, I can't do that. There's no organization in the world that can afford that, right? 
And so I think all of the metaverse plays are moving in that direction. Eventually, they will become unaffordable and will, in fact, be much bigger. If you took a look, for instance, at Sandbox's fully diluted value just by itself, you know, if you take that value, you know, that and Axie Infinity, the, you know, these are two new entrants, you could say, in the gaming space that already would put them amongst the top 10 or 20 or 30 game companies in the whole world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just think of that, right? Which means that it's not no longer possible uh, to, to, to be acquired by the likes. So I think Nike doing that was smart, tactically. I think it's also typical, right? There's some organizations that have a strong M&A culture. I think, you know, um, in the tech world, you know, IBM, for instance, um, you know, um, you know, in the brand world, I mean, Nike is no stranger to M&A, right? Even Adidas has done an M&A. So I think that is something that you should expect to see. But uh, in terms of community backlash, I mean, it's the same thing about the culture, right? People are like, you know, when you, when you buy an NFT of a project, you end up having ownership you end up owning a stake in that itself, right? And so you're not just owning, you know, a piece of work, you feel connected to it in a much deeper way. So this decision, normally, if it was true DAO-like, actually should be a DAO decision. It should be a conversation with the community. It should be, oh, we got a great offer from a large organization. We think it's gonna grow in this way. Can we, can we have a conversation around this? All of you holders, let's, let's chat about this. You know, for Animoca brands as a public corporation, we have to do this. If, you know, for instance, if if some organization suddenly came in and said, oh, we'd like to buy you, I can't make that decision by myself. I have to go and go for a shareholder vote. I have to present a prospectus. I have to tell people, you know, why, you know, if I wanted to do it, why, you know, you should do it, right? And then if they disagree, they can vote you down. And I think, and if they agree, they vote, then at least, you also ensure that the community will go with you. So I think the future M&As, especially ones in, in the blockchain space, especially as value becomes more significant, will have to go through a vote. They don't have to disclose who it is, but I think they have to run like public corporations do today, which is essentially a disclosure paper. And where they say, okay, we want to sell, but let's, let's then, you know, this is, this is how much is on offer. It almost looks like a, a, yeah. a DAO, DAO acquisition, of course. Like yes, a DAO could I think acquire so. another DAO. Yeah, th yes. this is interesting. That, uh, I love this point that you brought up. I think it's a fantastic discussion that we can have on the next episode. But sure. the uh, you could even make the, the point that maybe Artifact wanted to do something like that. But maybe in a clause with Nike, maybe Nike kind of shut that down. Yeah, and I think also, but also consider also that in the early stages, yeah, and in the case of Artifact, I don't, you know, they didn't have a fungible token. They didn't have a DAO mechanism, so it probably didn't matter because the ownership was within the traditional shareholder construct of, you know, your, your classic sort of preferred shares and like VC rounds and so forth, right? But, but here, actually, how do you bring your customers along? Because after all, what is Nike buying? Nike's not just buying the talent; they're also buying customers. Well, actually, if they think about this more holistically, they're like, well, how do I make sure? that the customers of my next metaverse acquisition want to be part of Nike. Oh, you know, and again, I go back to this example, like a country. Well, it's basically like, you know, annexing a country. They're not well, even just customers, they're shareholders. Yes, or they're stakeholders, they're citizens. So if, 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 if you know, if someone went on to, I mean, this is not going to happen, but, you know, if, if the U.S. said, hey, you know what, we'd like to take over Canada, and my wife's Canadian, so it's, she often says, oh, isn't that the 51st state? But anyway, <laughs> right, never mind. Um, but but uh, and she usually gets really upset. But but anyway, um, if if the U.S. actually wanted to sort of you know bring in essentially you know Canada into the fold, it can't it can't do that, right? 
But if the majority of the population says, actually, we'd like to do that, which has happened, right? Particularly during the formations of you know Europe in the last few uh, in the last decades, you know, after the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain and everything, and during those times, you know, they say, oh, actually, I think we think it's better there. Through that consensus, you bring in the population with you, as opposed to resisting you, right? Uh, which I think is the same parallel we need to look at as we look at um, you know M and A scenarios for for uh, metaverse companies. I think it would have been much better received, like you said, if they had at least talked with the community. It seemed like a surprise announcement in a, in a way that yeah. caught everybody <clears throat> off guard. So yeah, yeah. Fa- fantastic answer to that. So this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, we we don't have much more time. Uh, sure. Been a great interview as I expected when you know we kind of locked this one in. Uh, but I'm going to have these be kind of lightning answers almost. Uh, so just, j- just so I can get them all in. Uh, so okay. I, I'm not, I'm not good at lightning responses, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. So how about an Animoca brands token? Is that ever going to be in the works down the line? I think it's definitely, um, a possibility. Um, so the short answer is yes. You know, we have to be mindful of all the things that we th- need to think about. You know, we have a very large, uh, treasury of all sorts of other tokens at the moment that we're helping build or that we've invested in. Mm. You know, for us, the Animoca token would be an expression of having an ownership in Animoca, which means it's a security. Okay. And as a security, we think it comes a bit with timing. Not every country is ready to look at shares and security tokens in the same way. So we just need to be mindful of that. But I think it's definitely something that could be could be doable. A uh, tie in here to your portfolio. How do you view the selling of tokens as an investor? And I, I know there's a lot of things you can't say in that aspect, but you guys are big investors in a lot of the, um, pretty much all of the gaming sector. How do you guys look at both buying and selling and holding these uh, tokens from a risk standpoint? So one of the things that's very different about us um, is that we are not actually selling tokens into fiat because we don't know what to do with the fiat. <laughs> Right. And you can see that from uh, the, you can see that from our 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 sort of um, reserve standpoint, you know, as we disclose it, and we think we have, you know, outside of the sixteen billion dollars of sort of you know um, reserve tokens, you know, in terms of liquid tokens, um, you know, we're like I think it was six seven hundred million dollars, and you know, in terms of the income side, um, so it's it's. But what happens is, is that we actually use the tokens, uh, and so if you think of it this way. Uh, from if you believe in the growth of you know Web three in the metaverse, then actually you know we just need sufficient fiat so we can pay salaries, right? <laughs> and do it that way, right? But actually, if we want to build up you know the sandbox or we want to build up Axie Infinity or we want to build up these places, then we should use the tokens within the ecosystem. So use Axies, for instance, to breed to breed uh, you know Axies, for instance, or you know we use uh, actually and we also farm a lot of Ethereum because that's a way in which we can ensure. That when we mint uh, NFTs, that you know we have low to low to practically no cost, right? So you could think of it almost like, you know, it's a bad example because airlines aren't necessarily doing too well. But you know, if it were an airline, this is like a fuel hedging strategy as well, right? We're basically sort of managing our resources of the metaverse in a manner that we can continue to build on top of them, you know. And and so our position in Flow, for instance, we hold Flow because in order to build on Flow, you know, you need to have one Flow per wallet, right? So we could either ask our customers to pay for it. But, you know, um, or we can say, well, if you're using our products, we can give it to you or we can rent it to you or we can offer it to you. Right. And we don't have that upfront cost that's necessary and we can be more inclusive. So so that's basically the way that we look at our token strategy. And ultimately, the value can develop in, you know, if you are looking to invest in a token of ours, 
you know, you can take a look at how that's being built and you can, you know, it's up to you what you want to do with it. But our perspective is always to use the token. Um, and you'll notice then as a result, we don't do big pre-sales. You know, we don't sell a lot, right? It's really about community engagement. Mm -hmm. And also as an entity, we don't have to, which is also why you look at Phantom Galaxies. We, we issued stuff first um, without even issuing a token because it's not about raising money. It's about building building it out first. Okay. In investment strategy during bull and bear markets, does it change? Uh, if it's, uh, if, you know, if you look at what we did in 2018 and 2019 when the market was bad, we basically started just investing. Double down. More, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so look, we're, we're all in on the space, right? And so it would be hypocritical for us to say, oh, well, we've got to manage, our, manage ourselves. I mean, sure, we have to be responsible, right? Absolutely. But, you know, if, if we, you know, I think of this, as I said, as a space just like, you know, the internet three years ago. So if you have a long horizon, then you should invest in the space and hold and grow it. And unlike 30 years ago, you could only invest in the, say, you know, what was Tencent or what was Amazon or so on in the day. But actually, through an investment, you can't actually be a participant. Well, tokens change that. I can be an investor and I can be a participant. Basically, I can be, I can use my what used to be, frankly, kind of dead financial capital, into very productive capital in which I can help grow it. You know, simply staking tokens is an expression of supporting a network, which is something that, as a shareholder, I can't really do. I, I can hold my shares and I can sit on it, but that's not an expression of support, right? Um, it's more like, I mean, it's sitting there, and then its natural relationship is one that is purely for trade. It's not one for activity. And so that is something that we don't do. And that's something that we, we would like others to consider that when you make an investment in it, think about how you could use it and derive more value from it than just how to take it out to fiat. Because certainly, you know, we don't think fiat will be as critical um, uh, in the future. Amen to that. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to everyone who asked a question on today's episode. You guys are filling the chat box and I'm not going to get to all of them. Uh, one of the questions from Arthur here that's going to be one of the last ones yet uh, is talking about this like off-hat debate of land versus tokens from an investor standpoint. So just from your personal investment strategy, maybe, and say what you will or what you can, but that is the debate. It's like when I want to support a project, is it better to maybe buy the NFT assets or maybe, you know, better to buy uh, the token in a sense? Uh, <laughs> I know that's tough. Well, so I think when you buy a token, particularly one that has governance, then really what you're doing is you're um, getting into the, the ecosystem as a, I wouldn't say, you know, like a, like a, like a bondholder is a little bit too low from a perspective because it's, it's more than that. Uh, but you have, um, you get a sort of a light touch, I guess, um, stake in it. Um, whereas with land, you have to, so it's levels of productivity. By owning a token, you have a light level of productivity. And I would argue also a, you know, it's all relative to crypto because light's pretty big too, right? Uh, a light level of long-term return that you can generate from that because the things you can do with the token are more limited relative to land, right? And just like in the physical world, you know, when you have land, the actual value comes from the productivity that you deploy into the land, right? Kind of like how we define or how some economists define natural property rights, right? Is that the work that you put into the land is the value that you derive from it and the ownership thus right and i think this is the same same impact with land so with sandbox if you buy a sandbox land 
you could hold on to it, but you won't derive that much value out of it if it's just there. It will have value, it goes up, right? But then if you don't plan to do that much with it, maybe it's better for you to have the SAM token and get sort of a broader sort of, you know, um, um, appreciation. But if you actually have the land and you work it and, you know, you get Snoop on it or something, right? Well, then the value is so much larger than just the SAM token itself, right? You know, even property just around Snoop for instance, is very, very valuable because of the network effect that Snoop itself presents. So it goes back to this natural rights assumption of, well, if you do work and if you will put work into it, you should have more reward, right? It's it's like it's like if you build a business. Mm -hmm. Well, theoretically, your return on building your own business, you know, for the time spent, for the fiat you put in, should be much larger than just simply holding government bonds, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the, I think you can view it that, that, that same way. But I recognize also that you know, if you want to have a diversified play, you can't work the land you know, on every project, yeah. right? <laughs> so you have to diversify, and that's that's part of that. I think it's part of that. Liquidity yeah. and, and risk also play in. Uh, it's obviously a little bit more liquid uh, to hold a token yeah. uh, than it, than it is an NFT asset. That's a whole. I, I don't I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of of you sure. know having yes. holding NFTs and how liquid they can be or not be at times. Uh, Ardosh is asking uh, Yacht, will you write a book on the metaverse and its future? You know, I'm so busy building, you know, I, I would love to write a book, um, but I just don't know that I have time to do so. Um, there's so many articles that I wanted to write on Medium as well, and I just can't find the time to do that. So, 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 I mean, I, I, you know, let's put it this way. I would love to, but I don't have a way to split myself to have someone write stuff up. Um, but I think maybe in due course, um, you know, for the time being, you know, I think uh, my Medium blog is probably the best way to sort of see see our general thoughts about the space although it is not as frequent as i'd like it to be mm, well you're building so we'll give you a, a pass on that yeah uh, the, <laughs> I, I wanted to give a little highlight here to phantom galaxies i think it's going to be a fantastic yes. game it is an upcoming project so uh what's the updates with phantom galaxies and then that'll be i think one of the last ones and we'll get you out of here um well i think there's a few few things phantom galaxies look we're i think it was an experiment the way we launched it phantom galaxies is a, as for those of you who have had a chance to try the game um, you know, we think it's probably, you know, one of the best, if not the best sort of um, blockchain game that's out there at the moment in terms of its mechanics and its style and its visuals. So we're super excited about that. And we decided that we wanted to present it to sort of a more inclusive way, which is why we did the free airdrop. Um, and part of that, actually, just to talk a little bit about that is, you know, it was to try to deal with, you know, some of the gamer issues, gamer backlash that traditional gamers have had with that, right? How do we, so, so if you're sort of, you know, traditional gamers um, have been fleeced really for the last 20 years, particularly at the sort of time of freemium. So the game companies, if you look at their profits, incredible, right? <laughs> you know, EA, Activision, you know, um, Tencent. I mean, these games, these companies have done incredible. And they've done this, prim you know, because they've been able to extract lots of money from, from the customers. Yeah, right. None of that has come back to the customers. And so anytime they come and say they have a new scheme, whether it's valid or not, will be met with suspicion. And you see this when people make a change in the game design. The cynics immediately come up and say, oh, how are you trying to make money from me? As opposed mm. to, oh, it's really fun, right? So there is a, there's an embedded culture, unfortunately, that comes from decades of abuse to the gamer community. That therefore, when you come up with a new scheme, it's about that. And then they, he's a headline and they say, oh, Sandbox Land is billions of dollars. Oh, board ape is worth like you know, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars at on floor price. You want us to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars 
of my money. Well, screw you too, right? I mean, that's that's the natural reaction, right? Um, and so, 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 so you have to sort of understand the roots of this. It's not that gamers are sort of um, you know obnoxious, right? Or that they are like oh, I don't want to have any changes. I mean, it's the fact that you know we have. I think we need to appreciate that they have been abused for a long period of time. And the ultimate abuse is, of course, that they spend all this time, they spend all this money in those games, and then they don't own any of it, and they can't have any value. And then they change the rules so they can take more money from them. And then why are you supposed to be there and saying My that's heart cool? hurts. Right. Yeah, right? right. So, so anyway, so that's, that's, that's that. So with Phantom Galaxies, we said, well, how do we can, you know, knowing what the space is like, this is a game that is really a gamer's game, if you think about it, right? This is not a game for people who, I mean, they could invest, you know, in some of the future you know, in, in what may happen, we're doing sort of planets and uh, and, and so on, for instance, uh, or the NFT. So people could invest in that way and have a passive participation, right? But to play the game well, as for anyone who's tried it, you can see there's an amount of skill required, which, by the way, we think is important because the way in which we connect sort of, you know, the capital class that owns assets and the labor class that's basically that's going to work it are the ones who have skill, right, and who can play well. And, you know, it's one of the big things that we've been trying to solve. How do I get my mom to actually play those games? I can't get her to play the game. But you know what? She can buy those assets and have her grandchildren play for her. And they can have a nice relationship this way, you know, in terms of one. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. So that's when we did the first free airdrop, right? As a way of saying, hey, let's get everyone free. So none of you guys can say we're trying to take money from you because it's all free, right? You just, just, just start first, right? And then if you happen to be one of the lucky ones, and in fact, it wasn't easy, hard to, at all. You just had to register to, to, get, to, get, to get those NFTs. You can sell it and make some money. And for a lot of them, it was a really big experience of, wait, okay, they only made $5 or $10, but they're like, wait, I just made $5 or $10. First of all, it's an entry into crypto. And second of all, it's, it just started to sort of um, dawn on them that actually this, this could sort of work and this is something interesting. And so we, we, we did something similar uh, more on the, on, the, on the token launch with Crazy Defense Heroes, you know, and with Rev and so on. Yeah. I, I do think that that's an interesting way to go about a drop is doing it free because you can always, again, put on that 10% of royalties on the back end. And that could be the reward yeah. for the companies. And then you have a better relationship. And also, you it doesn't mean that you can't sell something in the future, right? It just means that, you know, how do you how do you make it inclusive for other people to participate? Mm. And I think this is the other thing. You know, we expect people to sort of be accepting of digital property rights. Um, uh, and and, and uh, it's kind of like saying, hey, just, just everyone just move to Tribeca. It's cool. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like... <laughs> exclusivity, yeah. Right, exclusivity. I can't, I can't do that, right? And so it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of flex almost. And it has a negative repercussion. And especially in this world where inequity is so high, I think we do need to be sensitive to the fact that most people today actually are struggling still, right? And so... By us, you know, it's like everyone, I mean, you know, this this, this common when Lambo, right? Like <laughs> it's on one hand, we think it's funny and we say, hey, that's that's a cool expression and we're just having fun around it. On the other hand, it's terribly obnoxious to a person who who can't even make ends meet and everyone's just talking about, you know, when can I get my race car, which will probably be virtual. You know, it's it's a it's a, so I think we, we need to play our part here as well. And be mindful and the way we bring them in is about being inclusive and friendly and we see this right people are saying hey join the community you know we'll give you some free nfts as well we we'll, we'll bring you in it's 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 no you know and because the more people joining the bigger it, and better it will become
Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that ethos, man, because even especially at like the height of the bull run, maybe it gets a little frothy with the timelines and people talking about the hundreds of thousands or thousands of dollars. You shouldn't need to do that, in my opinion. I mean, right. it's great. And I'm, I'm happy that my friends are making money and all these different things. But the a lot of the people that are building in this space that have way more money than the people that are talking about it on Twitter they don't need to talk about it. And and I appreciate you and Animoca Brands and the way you're going about it, which is just like, cool, the money was not there before and we're gonna build the same way as we were building back then, you know, if not with more energy. So I do appreciate that ethos, man. Um, I'm gonna cap it off Thank with that, that, that gamer discussion uh, was, yes. was interesting because the context there is Ubisoft came out with their announcement and immediately it was like the most disliked YouTube video of all time. And what people weren't understanding was that it wasn't a backlash to the NFT. It was a backlash to the studio, which I think is what you were getting at, which is the relationship yes. between the gamer and the studio is toxic right now. And I think the other thing that it highlights is a different kind of innovator's dilemma as well, which is that if we make the assumption that the space would be uh, challenging for startups because the big, the big groups are coming in, I don't think that's as true as we think it might be because their audiences are resisting it. Because, you know, I think it's, it's um, you become jaded when, when you're in an environment where you've been taken advantage of for a while. And again, I go back to the country analogy. How, you know, if a country's leadership has sort of abused its community, its society, has said things, but they didn't do it, or has, you know, raised too much taxes or whatever that may be, every move is cynical thereafter. And, and will always be viewed with criticism or at least with a very, very critical eye because, you know, your history, people judge based on your historic actions. And, and, uh, and you know, companies are exactly the same. So I actually think that this is the opportunity for startups as well as companies like Animoca Brands to emerge from this because we don't have the same baggage, right? Mm. Um, and then you look at our much shorter history and you say, well, how have we built it? And what have we done? And go, oh, okay. So, you know, if you actually look at this, we can actually really go and say, you know, we, we're doing this with the right intentions. This is how we're building it. And, um, and uh, you know, hand on our heart, this is exactly how we're constructing it. And we can be consistent with our values. And that's also, I think, one of the big reasons why there's a brain drain happening across the industries, because you know, people who join the large groups like Google or even Facebook or or even, you know, game companies, they had hopes that they could impact the world working for a large organization, which was certainly true for its time. But as they started to monopolize the space, it no longer became about serving a majority interest. It became about serving the minority interest of the ruling class, which in this case were either the shareholders or certainly the management of the business. How much profit can you do, right? And I think this is the other thing where, you know, I think the perspective of the classic way of thinking of capitalism has to be rethought of now. Because in the classic way of thinking of capitalism, you think about zero sum, who you know, winner takes all environment. And so people and then VC money traditionally also back that way as well. Like I'm gonna back this one because he's going to win. He's gonna sort of take all, right? But in web three with a shared network effect, that shouldn't be the case. And so that means companies have to rethink about the way that they redistribute benefits. It's like you know, this idea that you can grow a community by giving things is very antithetical to the classic way of, you know, capitalism. Making them so I think this will give rise to a new form of maybe social capitalism that I think is going to be really exciting, but is so new 
that I think traditional companies will struggle with. That's a great way to cap this interview. I think you broke down NFTs as you often do, uh, yeah, with clarity and with a lot of depth. So thanks for coming on uh, the Nifty Q Show. Uh, thank you for coming on the network a and, and being a supporter of the network as well. Uh, last comment I had here, they were asking uh, uh, the lads here, uh, our community were asking if you could say our mantra, which is our vibe, our tribe, so that we could record it and be able to share uh, with the community that- Of course, our vibe, our tribe. Awesome. Thank you, Yacht. Thank you again for uh, the interview. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. I'm going to wave goodbye to the people at home. Thanks for stopping by, guys. Uh, we will be back next week. Thank you. Thank you.